Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan covers all things prospects for MLB.com and MLBpipeline.com. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Pleasure to be with you. Well, Jonathan, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, I mean, I played uh, not particularly well, but uh, for through a couple of years of high school. So that was probably, you know, the the first conduit. But, I, you know, I was I was always a fan growing up. And, you know, I was even when I was playing you know, we all dream of being able to play. But I knew probably by the time I was 11 or 12, that that wasn't going to happen uh, beyond high school. And uh, I always kind of had a sense I wanted to be around sports in some way. And I like to write. And, uh, you know, the fact that it ended up being baseball that I'm writing is somewhat fortuitous. So, you know, when as a young journalist just looking for a job, uh, uh, you know, you go where the work is. And I'd done a little bit of everything. And to uh, the job at MLB.com came about. So it was kind of perfect, perfect storm because baseball has always been my favorite and my favorite to write about. Uh, just, I think it lends itself to good writing. So it's worked out pretty well. Were you always interested in prospects? How did the interest in prospects and prospect writing come about? I was always interested in it. Um, but you know, it took me a while to get to the point where I was, that's all I was all I was doing. I, I you know before MLB.com, I was at the New York Post, and even then, I did a, a, a series of uh, it was more travel log than anything else, but like visiting minor league parks that you could drive to from New York City. Uh, so I, I always kind of been interested in that. And then when I first got to MLB.com, the draft was big. I mean, this was you know pre-TV. Uh, we we would basically carry the audio stream of the conference call. But the traffic, and this is back in 1999, um, the traffic back then was, you know, we always would set traffic records for the draft. And so that's when I first started just writing stories about draft prospects and things of that nature. I hadn't really paid much attention to the draft before then. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of sort of national writing, you know, major league writing, but would do the draft every year, you know, it was kind of uh, one of our major things. And then Right around 2003, uh, wasn't real thrilled with you know what I was doing. We seemed we had a, you know several more national writers, and we didn't have anybody covering prospects full time. Uh, so I kind of carved that niche out, with, obviously with the blessings of the the powers that be in my place of work. And so since 2003, it's been all prospects all the time, and I love it. I love I love being able to uh, introduce people, you know, introduce players to, to readers and viewers, listeners uh, at large. You know, I've taken a real interest in the draft over the past few years, and I've always had an interest in the Hall of Fame. That's sort of my thing. And I like the draft now because I feel like with the draft and with the Hall of Fame, you're catching them at the beginning and at the end. It's the starting point and the ending point to a player's career, and everything in the middle is just watching baseball. Right. No, I think you're right. I, I am very excited to, at some point... Uh, although I don't want it to happen too soon because it will just show how old I am. But to get to the point of somebody that I covered in the draft to get to Cooperstown, um, you know, I, Mike Trout was the only one at his draft. And I probably interviewed him on MLB Network like five times. I was like the sideline guy that year. So 
to watch what he has become and like, uh, you know, assuming that he continues on the path he's on now and ends up uh, in Cooperstown, like that'll be a really, really exciting. Those will be exciting bookends for me. Were any of these kids actually born in 1990 or above yet? Has that happened yet? 1990. We're getting close to 2000. 2000, rather. That's what I meant. Um, yeah, we're, we're, I don't think so. There were a couple 17-year-olds, so, uh, but who will be turning 18 this year. So it's 1999. Yeah, when we, when we do work on the international prospects, you know, the guys who signed at 16, that's when we're starting to see those 2000, 2001s. And, um, you know, I always think about, you know, guys that were born after I started this, my job. I started in April of 99. So that's happened. Um, and that's frightening for sure. We've had a week to digest the draft. Overall, how did this class compare to last year's? You know, the, 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 the first answer to that question is always, uh, well, we need to wait and see. But, you know, going in, it didn't seem like it was quite as strong, especially up top. Um, but there's some depth there. And I think, you know, I think that proved to be true. There was some good talent being taken, you know, second, third, fourth round. Uh, and not just because of signability, uh, just, you know, because there were some good players, uh, down in that neck of the woods. And I think that will be the hallmark of this draft. I'm, I, I'm sure there will be a good amount of big leaguers that, uh, that come from this, from this draft class. The big buzzwords going into the draft were about two-way players. This was mainly because mm-hmm. two top five picks and Hunter Green and Brandon McKay really excelled on both sides of the ball. I'm wondering if perhaps, and this is especially the case with McKay, if maybe they each got overrated because they do both well. Because ultimately, doing both well isn't going to matter. It's doing one really well that's going to matter most. I'm curious if you think that the two-way thing was perhaps overblown. I mean, it, it was overblown only in the fact that people talked about it a lot and wrote about it a lot. But you know, each of those guys were evaluated for each side of the ball separately. Um, so in terms of you know draft status and stock, uh, the fact that they they did both very well had, had um, you know had little to do with uh, you know with grading them out. Now you know the athleticism of being able to do both is something that is not unimportant. Um, probably more so for Hunter Green since he's you know a shortstop. And uh, but the thing with Brendan McKay that you know was so fascinating was that he would you know he's a top five pick either way. Uh, you know, he wasn't a top five pick because he could do both. Well, Hunter green was probably more like a lower first round pick based on his ability to hit. Um, and listen, I think, I think it's interesting that both the reds and the rays indicated that they're going to let those guys do a little bit of both, at least in this first summer, uh, just to let them get their, their feet wet. So, uh, the story has some legs in terms of it being an interesting sort of sidebar, but I, I don't think it really impacted, uh, how, how they were, uh, evaluated or ranked. Four first basemen went in the top 20. Three of those were college bats. Did that surprise you at all? Uh, no, I mean, only because we knew that that, you know, coming in, that that's what, uh, you know, if you're going to have the strength of a class in one position, uh, at least up top there, there were a uh, surprising amount of first basemen. Just as we're heading in, looking at, our, you know, at our top 200 list and who was up top, how many first basemen would potentially go in the, in the first round was uh, surprising. But, you know, once it actually happened, it, it made sense based on how we had the the rankings lined up. Uh, it certainly is rare that, uh, that that happens and it. It gets difficult to, to evaluate guys like that who are first baseman only because they are limited to one spot. They're not 
super athletic, so you have to like, make sure that they're not going to slow down so much that they end up being DHs. Uh, but there were some really, really good defensive first basemen. You know, Evan White from Kentucky and then Nick Prado uh, from the high school ranks in Southern California, both guys who are uh, plus defenders at first base. So it wasn't just, you know, big, huge guys who hit for power, that sort of stereotype of first base only types. In a bit of a surprise, the Twins selected Royce Lewis with the number one overall pick. What are they getting in him? They're getting a lot of tools. It was a bit of a surprise only because his name was not being mentioned prominently, although he was in the original mix of players that the Twins had uh, said that they were considering, and his name was never crossed off. Um, But he's as toolsy a player as there is in this draft class. I mean, maybe Joe Adele has uh, slightly better tools, but only in certain ways. I mean, Lewis has a chance to be, not a chance to be, he will be an up-the-middle player. Whether it's a shortstop or in center field, we'll we'll have to see. But he has a chance to be a dynamic player up the middle who can impact uh, the game in a a number of ways. I think he has a better feel to hit than Joe Adele does. That's why I gave him the the slight bump, and that's why we had him ranked higher. there's plenty of power to tap into there. So, I mean, he can do uh, uh, you know, a lot of everything considerably well. Hunter Green went number two to the Reds. He's just out of high school. He's been profiled in Sports Illustrated. He throws over 100. There's a lot to like about this kid. Yeah, there is. And, and the athleticism that I mentioned, I think, comes into in terms of what he might do eventually on the mound because he is a little raw. I mean, the the fastball, everyone knows about triple digits and but not everyone loves his breaking, his current breaking ball. And then we were having this ongoing debate about the field to spin a breaking ball and how much can be learned and, you know, uh, how much can't. Um, he will show a, a good slider, but it's not always. But I think he's the kind of kid that once he focuses on pitching only and gets professional instruction, uh, that breaking ball is going to get a, a whole lot better. Um, there is a tremendous amount of ceiling and potential for him uh, without question. Um, He hasn't thrown a ton, so he's got a fresh arm. That's a plus on the minus. uh, He hasn't had as much time on the mound as some other, you know, high school arms from California who they throw all the time. Uh, I found it kind of interesting that people were complaining, you know, that he got shut down and he didn't throw that many innings. Uh, A lot of the times it's the same people that were complaining about, kids throwing too much. So like, you can't really have it both ways. I think uh, that once he, he gets going in his pro career, uh, things are going to start to come together for him really, really well. How are the Reds going to, at least initially, let him do both as a pitcher and as a, and as a shortstop? How are they going to try to develop him? Yeah, I don't think that's going to last very long. They drafted him as a pitcher, um, but they also know that uh, he hasn't pitched in a game since, I think, late April. Uh, even though he's been throwing bullpens regularly, it's, it, it will take him some time to build up to the point where he's pitching in any games uh, this summer. Uh, while he's doing that, they're going to let him DH. He's not going to play. I don't think he's going to play shortstop at all. At least that's not my understanding uh, because I don't think they want to risk anything happening to him arm wise. To me, I think it's just sort of a, a way to let him have some fun. You know, the, that, that first summer is really, especially for a high school guy, uh, you know, and actually, even for a college guy, unless he's the kind of college guy you think he might get to the big leagues right away, I, I, you know, it's all about getting your feet wet professionally. And why not let him get his feet wet 
by allowing him to do what he's been doing, you know, throughout his amateur career, let him have some fun, uh, with the understanding that there will probably come a time in the very near future, uh, you know, next spring training, whatever it's going to be, or, or even during the off season in terms of uh, how he prepares that it's going to be, uh, pitching only. And, uh, you know, if he gets a chance to hit in some games, so be it depending on the league and the rules and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea to let him, try to do both and, and, uh, and let him have some fun as he introduces himself to the pro ranks. Mackenzie Gore, high school pitcher, went number three to the Padres. Tell me about him. He, you know, if you ask uh, my colleague Jim Callis, uh, he is a big Mackenzie Gore fan. In fact, we got to the point where we were teasing him because uh, he, he liked him better than Hunter Green in, in a lot of ways and, and would have taken him number one overall had he had the, had the first pick. And Jim and I split up the country. Uh, uh, in terms of the reports that we put on on MLBpipeline.com. And so he has North Carolina, I have California. So while we both were well-versed in, in Green and Gore, he talked to a lot more people about Gore, and I talked to a lot more people about Green. But uh, Gore's breaking ball uh, is better than, than Green's. Uh, obviously, Green's fastball is better. But Gore has uh, three quality pitches, commands it. He's a good athlete, too. Uh, had he gone on to college, he probably would have been a two-way player. Now he wasn't really considered a hitting prospect in the draft at all, like like Green, uh, you know, was. But uh, but he was he was plenty good. Uh, obviously, in high school, almost the, all kids do both uh, and are often you know, good for their high school team at the other. Uh, but Gore was really it was really good. So. He's very athletic. He repeats his delivery well, even though it's a little bit funky. Um, you know, he has a chance to be a really, really good high school uh, left-hander, uh, and maybe the kind that uh, I'm never going to say a high school pitcher is quick to the big leagues, but because of his feel for pitching and the three above-average pitches, uh, he has a chance to move to move relatively quickly compared to maybe some some other high school arms in the class. Brandon McKay. Some thought he would go number one overall out of Louisville, another two-way player. He went to the Rays. How will the Rays develop him? Well, he he's going to hit, um, but he's going to get a chance to do a little bit of both. Obviously, um, you know, he's still playing, and he's not going to throw. Even if they had drafted him as a pitcher, the first summer for a college junior who's your, you know, a team's ace, especially one for a team that goes to, to Omaha in the College World Series, uh, he's not going to throw all that much anyway. So I think for this first summer, he's going to hit and every fifth day throw, usually it's like a, you know, a two inning or three inning start. And then he'll DH in between. I mean, maybe he'll play a little first base in between also, but they're going to let him do a little bit of both and, and see what develops there. Uh, my guess is next year, the one with the hit. Cause I think once he's focusing on hitting, he is the kind of guy that could move very, very quickly and be one of those college bats that gets to, to the big leagues uh, in, in relatively short order. And I think, you know, he already showed the, the ability to, to hit for average he's power. He's got bat speed. He's got good plate discipline. And that's without getting to do all of the things that a hitter normally gets to do because he had to also mix in bullpens and preparing for starts and things like that. So I think there's more in the tank there for him as a hitter. How much control do major league organizations have over a college player in the college world series? It's still weird to me that the draft is before the college season ends. I don't know why they do that, but when a player is drafted by an organization and is still playing college ball, how much say do they have in his usage going forward? Zero. 
absolutely no no say whatsoever. They just have to sit there and and hope for the best. And uh, years ago, I covered the College World Series. Must have been 2003, and Stanford's ace was a right-hander named John Hudgens, and the Rangers had drafted him. And I remember uh, talking to people with the Rangers. Uh, at least I think it was the Rangers. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the Rangers. Anyway, uh, he threw. He made three starts in nine days and threw like 370 pitches or something ridiculous. And I remember calling up and talking to uh, the Rangers uh, scouting director at the time and being like, but you you must be cringing. And they understand that it's part of the deal. Um, You hope that they don't get abused in the College World Series, but you also know that college coaches are trying to win uh, and will do so pretty much at all costs. And the hope is is that the college coach will try to do that without com- without complete disregard to that that player's future, but there are no guarantees. Yeah, that's tough. If you're an organization, there's so much emphasis on pitchers in the major league level with pitch counts and developing pitchers, you know, slowly feel like pitchers are monitored at every single level and they're on pitch counts and innings limits everywhere except college where the coaches and managers just do whatever they want with these guys. I, I find that to be a bit unethical. What do you think? It It, it certainly can be. Um, you know, uh, they only throw once a week, so that's a, a slight buffer, but there are times you see these pitch counts. Yeah, all right. One time I, I get it. I mean, I think in the perfect world, it would never happen this way, but one time fine, you know, big game championship game. Okay. Um, but especially for the guys who have baseball far beyond, uh, that end point in college, it, it, it is, uh, to me, being incredibly selfish and narrow-minded for a lot of these college coaches to to do what they do with with some of these pitchers. Now, I remember someone was complaining a couple of weeks ago, and I don't even remember what level it was, or it was a conference tournament, maybe even like Division Two or something like that. And uh, uh, some pitcher threw a, a ridiculous amount of pitches on like short rest and. Uh, there was some buzz about how, like, well, those being irresponsible. Now, this player was a senior. He was not going to play a an inning beyond college baseball, and he basically told the coach, "You know, use me until my arm falls off." That's like the one exception, but it's so rare. But so some context is needed. Uh, but uh, you know, unfortunately, there's not there's no way to govern or regulate how coaches use them. Rounding out the top five, Kyle Wright, right-hander out of Vanderbilt, went to the Braves. What are they getting in him? Oh, another guy who was in the mix for number one overall. And it uh, wasn't until like Saturday or Sunday we heard that he was n- not really in the mix. I think, you know, he only got to five and some of it is just, you know, personal preference, uh, you know, or, or, or scouting department preference. And, uh, and you, we pretty much knew the Reds were locked in on Hunter Green if he didn't go number one overall. And the Padres, you know, probably considered him a little bit, but I never heard that they were on him. And the Rays always had Brendan McKay at the top of their list. So, you know, he gets five. But this is a guy who outside of, you know, the first, I don't know, five, six weeks of of this season where he really struggled, has been really good for a really good team. Uh, you know, he, he's he, he's done it for Vanderbilt in the SEC. And then he really turned it on. And he was, to me, the one college pitcher who 
performance-wise, finally near the end, separated himself and was pitching close to the end with the stuff and the results that looked like a guy who belonged, you know, at or near the top of the draft. And uh, I think he's going to be one of these arms that doesn't take very long to get to the big leagues either. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Braves have all these really young pitchers that they drafted at a high school, some of whom they double jumped to, to double A. Uh, I don't think it's going to take right very long to catch up to them. Outside of the top five, who were your favorite picks in the first round? Well, I think, the you know, it's funny because I'm not, I'm not a huge Jaron Kendall fan. I'm worried about the, the swing and miss. But for the Dodgers to get him at 23, I thought that was really good. I think the Tigers getting Alex Fajardo at 18 is going to turn out to be good. Uh, Evan White uh, at 17 to the Mariners. That's a solid pick. Uh, you know, the the Pirates got Shane Boz at 12, and he was arguably, you know, after Green and Gore, the, the best high school pitcher uh, in, the, in the draft class. So you know, those guys in the middle of the round, uh, I think, were, were really good. You know, I kind of like what the Rangers did. You know, the Rangers always go after upside. So they're you know, getting Bubba Thompson and Chris Seif, uh in in the first round. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're good gets and fit exactly their philosophy to a T. Yeah, I would have never draft a guy named Bubba. I feel like every once in a while there are first-round picks and there are guys named Bubba and they think they're top prospects and they always fizzle out. So my, my one rule of drafting would be never draft a guy named Bubba. Well, you're just what, you're Bubba Starling. That's the one guy you're hanging your hat on for that. <laughs> yeah, all uh, of Bubba the Bubbas. Tom- Bubba Thompson's really interesting because you know he you know he he could have gone on to to an SEC team to play football, and there is a ton of ceiling here. And unlike a lot of two sport guys, his feel for the game is really really good. Um, that that doesn't happen very often. So you know I think he uh, he he has the a legitimate chance to be a really, really good player. We may look back, uh, and this bubble will make you uh, rescind that statement. I think I think you might be right. We'll see. I hope he does. <laughs> Who were the biggest reaches in the first round? There weren't that many. I mean, that's the amazing thing. You know, there was a lot of buzz that the Braves might cut a deal, you know, kind of like they did with Ian Anderson last year, although Ian Anderson was top half of the first round kind of pick. Um, but it didn't happen. The top five players on our top 200 went in the top five picks and the top 30 in the first round, all but three were in our top 30. And then, you know, our rankings are based purely on talent, not where we think they might go. I think the only real reaches were the Yankees taking Clark Schmidt at 16, the right-hander from South Carolina uh, had Tommy John surgery. Had he been healthy, that might've been a perfect place for him. And uh, they're going to save some money there. And they went and got, Matt Sauer in the second round, a high school right-hander from California. So it made sense once they made once they made the second pick. And then uh, Helio Ramos, the high school outfielder from Puerto Rico, the Giants took at 19. And we had heard that his name was popping up somewhere in that neck of the woods, and uh, we had him ranked, you know, a bit lower than that. And I think if it were any other team, I'd be like, huh, I wonder why they did that. But the Giants have such a good track record of kind of going off the board a little bit in the first round. They did it with Christian Arroyo. They did it with Joe Panic. Both of them are pretty good big leaguers, you know, so I, I am more than willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, at least for the time being. But outside of those two, there really weren't any names in the first round that were like, whoa, I can't believe that guy went in the first round. How about some guys to watch outside of the first round, guys who were picked on day two or three that you think have a chance to make an impact? I think mean, there's a lot. And you know what happens is 
you know, everyone's going to sign by and large, all but two in the top 10 rounds signed last year. So anybody who went in the top two, I think is going to end up signing. I'm trying to think Matt Sauer, you know, that the Yankees took in the second round by, by saving money with Clark Schmidt. I, I like him a lot. Michael Mercado, the Rays got him in the second round. Uh, and then if you look ahead to day two, usually what happens is guys that didn't go in the first two rounds are some signability questions. And if they go in the third round, uh, then they're going to sign if they slide out of the third round. So there are a bunch of guys there. I'm a huge McAllen fan. Uh, you know, he's, he's small, but he can flat out play shortstop, like gold glove caliber shortstop. I think he's going to hit enough. The A's took him at 81, uh, pick value for that is just shy of $700,000. I'm sure he's going to get a lot more than that to, to sign, but there are several names, uh, in there. Uh, Matt Tabor from Massachusetts is an interesting guy. Uh, the Reds just announced, uh, or it was just, uh, reported that Jacob Heatherly at 77 is an interesting lefty from Alabama. Blaine Enloe, the twins got him to start things off. Uh, so there's some, so there were some interesting names that went at that, uh, that first round of day two. Which organization do you feel like landed the best draft this year? Obviously it's important for the teams in the top five to do very well, but was there one in particular you thought nailed it? You know, I think both the twins and the Reds did really well. And that seems kind of like, well, it's easy to pick teams that not only uh you know pick one two but they had a uh, lottery round picks uh so you know so they had those extra uh selections but i think both of them did really well i, I think uh, the pirates had a really really good draft uh especially last year they you know they were a little conservative in taking will craig in the first round for them to go and get shane Baz uh with their first pick and then to continue to be really aggressive uh, you know, they had an extra pick later, but they've got, they got Steven Jennings in the second round, another high school right-hander who was kind of a, a late pop-up guy, uh, pitch was pitching really well. Um, Cal Mitchell, they got a, a little bit later, uh, who entering the spring looked like one of the better high school hitters and just tried to do a little too much sell out for power. So he slid a little bit. Um, so I, I you know, I like what they did. And then Connor Osselton, they got, at the end of lottery round B, that was all, you know, on day one for them to get four sort of high end high school guys. I think they did a really nice job uh, with how they handled their picks. The draft season never really ends for you. Prospect season never really ends. You do this year round. Who are some of the early favorites to go one overall next year? That's funny because normally I'd have that answer at the ready because typically I'm the one that does the, you know, who are the top guys for next year, but Jim did those. But uh, I can tell you, I know Brady Singer from University of Florida could be that guy. And keep in mind that the last two years, both A.J. Puck and Alex Fayeto kind of entered the summer as potential number one guys and even beyond that and then didn't quite get there. I mean, they both end up being first rounders. Uh, but I think there's just Bryce Tarang is a, uh, is a shortstop from, from California, really good hitter. Uh, and can and can play short. Those are the top two guys. Let me see if I can give you one of each type of player. So I gave you a college pitcher and a high school hitter. Uh, how about Kumar Rocker uh, from Georgia as a high school pitcher? That's a high school right-hander, by the way, and the high school right-hander, of course, still has never gone number one overall. And I don't see Seth Beer or Lucan Baker as really those are the college hitters. Uh, I don't see either one of them really being number one guys. They're probably first baseman only, but they can both really hit. So those are just a, a few guys to keep an eye out for. 
You've been listening to Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan covers the prospects and all things prospect-related for MLB.com and MLBpipeline.com. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me.